You're listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is broadcast every Tuesday, 9am till 12pm on 3RRR FM. On today's show, we chatted with Ben Eltham about federal politics. Uh, We spoke with Professor Sheila Fitzpatrick about the centenary of the Russian Revolution. Then we had a chat with former US Republican Congressman Bob Inglis about his conversion to taking climate action and his advocacy for a carbon tax in America. Then we spoke with author and social researcher Rebecca Huntley about her new book, Still Lucky. Ben, federal politics, just a moment. I haven't got your mic up. There we go. Hello, Amy. How are you? Good morning. I'm good, thank you. Uh, That's good, good. It's a uh, Tuesday morning, slightly early, but I've had caffeine, so things should be okay. It's actually a beautiful day out there. Isn't it? It was a little bit crisp this morning. Autumnal. (laughs) <laughs> Actually, yeah, we're just a bit early, aren't we? A little bit, but yeah, blue skies, lovely feeling. Yeah, it yeah. is gorgeous. Um, so, Ben, uh, some things are happening, but there seems to be just a lot of hot air at the moment uh, in terms of what's going on up in Canberra. There's, you know, policy things being floated, but it's all a bit thought bubbly. There's not a lot of um, real substance and serious proposals being made. It just seems like, um, you know, we're going a bit roundabout in circles. And a great example of that is this discussion about climate change and coal uh, and renewable energy. Yes. Well, the government's continuing to fight its culture war on energy, really. And um, it's getting further and further detached from reality, frankly. And and I, and I actually think it's it's starting to damage the government, not just with, uh, you know, not, not just with swinging voters or with people who believe in climate change, but perhaps even to some degree with moderate liberal voters because we know that some of them actually believe in climate change as well. And the government's obsession with playing politics on energy is starting to look, frankly, silly. So in the last few days, we've seen the suggestion that the government will try to amend the law for the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, which is the Green Bank set up originally by Christine Milne, actually, in negotiation with Julia Gillard back in 2011 when Gillard was negotiating on the carbon tax the first time around. Um, and it's been a very successful in- initiative. Very successful, absolutely. Very profitable for the government. Yeah, if you want to look at a legacy in politics, you would have to look at the CEFC from Christine Milne and say that was a pretty interesting and important policy and it's gone on to finance a bunch of renewable energy all around the country um, and to drive technological change. So uh, the government wants to change the rules for the CEFC and (laughs) allow it to fund coal, of course. because it's so clean. The government is obsessed with coal or more more appropriately obsessed with the politics of energy. It believes that Mm. uh, Bill Shorten is vulnerable to a scare campaign on energy. Now, we certainly saw that... uh, uh, electricity prices scare campaign was effective under Tony Abbott against Julia Gillard. But the world has moved on since then. And I think it's an open question whether Malcolm Turnbull and the coalition can prosecute that kind of scare campaign this time around. Well, they're not Tony Abbott 2.0. Um, they Things may have stayed the same, but the ferocity with which Tony Abbott prosecuted that kind of attack campaign, do you think Malcolm would have it in him? 
Well, he's certainly lifted his game in terms of uh, ferocity in the last couple of weeks. He's been pretty negative, actually, and, and very attacking, which is not particularly prime ministerial. Again, I think calculated at shoring up his own party base and, and trying to keep his own numbers in the backbench on his side. But whether that's cutting through, I mean, the polls tell us that Turnbull is actually an increasingly unpopular prime minister. Mm. So uh, I think uh, this, there's a lot of risks in the government for going down this very, very partisan position on energy. I mean, just on the sort of simple, you know, well, let's look at the evidence. I know that's very passe <laughs> in politics in 2017, but the evidence says that coal is the most expensive form of new energy, um, that the clean coal is, is basically an oxymoron. It's a myth. It can't. It can't be clean because coal is made out of carbon. So when you burn it, the carbon goes into the atmosphere and warms the planet. And there's really no getting around that, mm. despite what the government you would can't like put us it back to believe. In the ground. Yeah, and the government has all sorts of inconsistencies here, and I'd like to see the the press gallery and the media call them out on them a bit more. Uh, there was there was some good coverage in the Guardian about how absurd this is, but you know, let's just take for example the fact that the government has signed up to the Paris Climate Agreements. They have mandated Australia to reduce our carbon emissions. Now you can't do that by burning coal. It's just really as simple as that. So. Why the government believes that coal can be a form of clean energy, really, I mean, they haven't explained it. They haven't really explained how it can work, either technologically or economically. There are no commercial operators wanting to build coal plants. And it's pretty simple why, because the risk is too high. I mean, think about it, what would be entailed in building a coal plant in 2017. I mean, you're going to be expecting this plant to operate through the next 30 years. Do we really believe that no governments in the future of Australia are not going to impose a carbon tax? Of course, there's going to be some form of regulation of emissions in the future in Australia. And only the dinosaurs in the coalition backbench really believe otherwise. Well, why exactly are they dancing around, um, you know, the evidence? Is it just because they know that, you know, if they actually had to have a fight over facts, they'd lose? Yeah, I, I believe it's it's a truly cynical ploy by the government that simply believes it can beat up Labor on the issue of cheap energy. They they really believe that they can tell the lie over and over that coal equals cheap energy. It doesn't. Uh, renewables are now the cheapest. Uh, it doesn't matter which way you slice the cake. That's just the way it works out. And um, we'll get cheaper. And we'll get cheaper, of course. If you look at some of the auctions going on in India and also in the Arab Emirates in recent years, we've seen prices for solar, grid-scale solar, uh, down into the four or even three cents a kilowatt hour. So these are very, very cheap forms of energy now. Um, and they are going to be cheaper than coal. It's just as simple as that. Um and there's really, I mean, you know, what this is all about, as we said last week, is the politics of climate and the politics, I think, also of, uh, of the, it's, a, it's about shoring up the coalition base because there's a, a hardcore of coalition voters who simply don't believe in climate change. Climate change has been so politicised that they really do believe in the conspiracy theories and they believe that it's a myth cooked up by the UN or the climate scientists or the greenies who want to deindustrialise Australia or whatever it is. 
Um, so it plays well to that minority of voters. But unfortunately for the coalition, they are not the majority. So unless they can get people to believe that renewables somehow are either expensive or uh, cause the grid to shut down or they can continue to make up, you know, basically lies about what's happened in South Australia... Uh, that's been their strategy. And I think Labor has started to get its ducks in a row on climate policy and it's come out and announced a series of climate policy announcements in the months since the election. And Labor's policy is starting to look reasonably together. Uh, and so I think I think it's actually the time might have passed for this kind of scare campaign. Yeah, well, it does feel a bit like it's passed. It's, it's used by date, but also... Is the government succeeding somewhat in wedging Labor? Because Labor um, in the last week was a bit confused as to what exactly their renewable energy policy was. Um, And then we had, so we had Chris Bowen talking on Sky News who was a bit flustered and couldn't quite uh, articulate what um, he was trying to get on about. And then Mark Butler coming out to say, well, actually um, the renewable energy target that Labor has and agrees to, which is, um, which goes up to 2020, will no longer, there won't need to be a target after 2020. Um, and then that uh, the the target that they had for 50% renewables by 2030 will now be a goal. So it's an aspiration, not necessarily a mandated target or even, um, you know, a KPI that the government would measure itself against. What do you think of that? Yeah, well, this shows that Labor is pretty scared of the scare campaign, actually. Labor has been pretty timid here. So uh, Labor has committed to an emissions intensity scheme, which is a form of an emissions trading scheme. It's basically very similar to the old ETS, uh, but it has a few differences. Uh, what, but, what do you think will make the difference in the, terms of, do, is it more palatable to, um, to the public if it's an intensity scheme? Um, Well, that's their theory. Uh, I don't know whether that's the case because the coalition will still call it a carbon tax and Mm. beat them up about it at every moment. Um, The difference between an emissions intensity scheme and a straight-up emissions trading scheme is that a true ETS uh, basically caps carbon emissions across the entire economy and it forces all polluters in all sectors to pay for their pollution. Now, uh, an emissions intensity scheme... Uh, instead, what it does is it caps the intensity of your emissions, basically, which is the sort of amount of pollution you put out as opposed to the energy you generate. But it's still there's still a cap on emissions there and it still mm-hmm. is a way of energy companies trading their pollution between each other. And, of course, this is the economist's idea of how to make the least cost adjustment to a lower carbon economy. Now, we had all these debates back when the carbon tax was being debated in 2012 and 2013. Now, while it wasn't wiped off the map and the economy didn't crash and everyone got on with life. So I think we can agree that even... Uh, a, a pretty broad and um, fairly stringent ETS, which was the 2012 ETS, did had had very little effect. So this even milder form of an emissions intensity scheme would be even less noticeable, basically. Mm. Well, I hope that uh, this brings the, the discussion along. I guess we'll only really know until we get to the next round of electioneering. It, it will not bring the discussion along, Amy, because <laughs> the coalition is determined to play politics of energy and they really, they, they're not going to stop. They're, they're going to take... going to try and wear the electorate down? Because I think it's starting to work. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. They're going to just continue to lie about energy because they believe that it's a, it's a way they can win votes.
Yeah, God. It's pretty cynical, but I think that's actually where we're at in politics and right now. Uh, Catherine Murphy had a really good article in The Guardian over Mm, the weekend where she pointed this out that, you know, on... Any, almost any public policy issue you want to name, whether it be tax, whether it be housing affordability, whether it be energy, uh, there are some pretty obvious answers to, our, to the problems that confront us and that there's answers that a lot of experts agree on and that even sort of sensible people, if you get them in a room and ask them some questions in a kind of citizen jury kind of sense, they can agree on them as well. But the politicians cannot because what the politicians want is conflict because some of them are just addicted to conflict and they need to fight. They need, And she was talking about this, you know, this desire for them to beat each other up as really the, the, the dominant form of, of political engagement. And I think it's a, a tremendous problem actually in our democracy. Mm. Well, I mean, politics is adversarial, but there are various ways you can be adversarial. And certainly a lot of bipartisanship often happens behind the scenes. It doesn't have to be adversarial. I mean, there used to be this notion of consensus. Uh, well, at least consensus on the facts. <laughs> yeah, well, that would be a good <laughs> at, at start, minimum. wouldn't it? Yeah. But even the, the idea of consensus and consensual politics used to be a lot bigger than it is now. I mean, if some of our listeners might be old enough to remember back to Bob Hawke. I mean, he came to Parliament as a union leader who was famously known as the Great Conciliator. His, his sort of... Um, the way he came to fame was as a union leader in the ACTU who was good at getting agreements with negotiating between unions and employers to get deals. So that kind of consensus politics has really gone out the window, mm. I think, in, in the 21st century. And that I think the, the voters are the poorer for that. Well, he's a pretty amiable bloke, isn't he? I think I'd agree with what Bob said a lot of the time, even if I disagreed. Well, and there's many people who think that the Hawke cabinet was the last proper cabinet government in Australia Mm. too, where Hawke genuinely ran it as the sort of first among equals and had a lot of high quality cabinet ministers and they had a lot of debates and they tended to make decisions by consensus over a long period of time. And, you know, if you look back at the record of the Hawke-Keating government, it was pretty positive on a lot of areas and certainly where both the Rudd-Gillard and the Abbott-Turnbull governments have got themselves into trouble is often when they've made peremptory decisions without consultation, not necessarily bringing in all the cabinet ministers, really making them straight from the prime minister's office and that's been the cause of political disasters like the 2014 budget. Mm. Well and Is there, like, is that still happening? Because I know there's some tension between the Treasurer's office and the PMO. So um, one of the kind of very, very brief uh, ideas that was floated were changes to capital gains tax, which I think was last week, and it was so fleeting you could have missed it. (laughs) Well, this was another one of these kind of coalition thought bubbles that sort of disappeared in an afternoon. So uh, housing affordability, as we've talked about this year, is... A crisis, critical, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a genuine crisis confronting Australian society. Uh, it's something that's developed over a generation. Um, it's a complex problem with complex causes that's going to need complex solutions. But one of the things that you could do straight away to address housing affordability is to stop giving people tax breaks for property investment. Mm. So to stop giving tax incentives to people to speculate on property would be a really good start. And it's pretty hard to find a housing expert who doesn't agree that we should curb negative gearing and capital gains tax on the house. So at the moment, for example, um, if you're the owner of a house, you don't pay capital gains tax on the house, on the family house. So 
Um, I mean, that's a, that's a huge uh, tax incentive that you get to buy and sell your house. Okay, if you buy and sell shares, you have to pay CGT on those, but not on the house. Um, so it's a, it's a preferential treatment of an asset class. There's just really not any logic to that. How can you back up that policy? The logic in Australian housing policy is all about imagine if landlords wrote it because that's how it works, right? So everything in Australian housing policy is geared towards making things great for landlords and mm-hmm. making things really, really shitty for tenants and, and renters. And that's part of the crisis that we find ourselves in now. So the government did think about maybe winding back that tax break on CGT, on the property investment, uh, and that lasted about four hours before they ruled it out because, you know, they're utterly in the sway of the property industry and, of course, many Liberal parliamentarians and indeed Labor parliamentarians own houses themselves. So there's a huge kind of class incentive for the, the political class themselves to own a lot of property and it's part of the problem, I think. Mm. Do you think it's, like, just how powerful is the property lobby? Is it because they're such a huge engine behind the economy that that's how much that they get greater sway they are very impo- they are very powerful and very influential particularly in the liberal party i mean i think anyone who's rocked up to a liberal party branch meeting or you know been involved in grassroots liberal politics or even reported on it like i have uh you'll know that um it's a very typical member of the local Liberal Party will be the local real estate agent, you know. Mm. And then if you go up to the sort of top level, like the Property Council of Australia, a very, very influential and powerful lobby group. And then, of course, there are all the macroeconomic issues around what do you do with Australia's housing market? It's definitely in a bubble, I think, and most people probably agree, but deflating a bubble is kind of quite risky. So if house prices start to drop... Who does that hurt? Well, that hurts all the people who own houses. A lot of them vote Liberal. Mm, Yeah. Well, let's keep talking about it, Ben, and hopefully we might see some kind of breakthrough. But uh, I'm always going to be the optimist. (laughs) I'm not hopeful on much in terms of policy breakthroughs of the current government. No, but yeah, well, let's see. Because um, one of the other kind of movements uh, that's happening at the moment, as we saw and we mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, is that Corey Bernardi has left the Liberal Party. He's now a, a, a minority per party person in mm, the Minority Senate. of one. Yeah. Um, and George Christensen seems to change his mind every 10 seconds as to whether he's going to stay in the coalition or join Corey. Do you think this is really a realistic uh, potential move or is he just kind of dangling his resignation letter in front of Malcolm for fun? Um, it seems like he's just dangling it, but I wouldn't rule out Christensen leaving um, because if you look at Christensen's seat up there in central Queensland, it's pretty marginal. Um, it's a difficult seat for a coalition to a coalition politician to win, particularly with the current kind of anti-politics vibe that's around in Queensland. So if Christensen left the coalition, I think it would enhance his own prospects of running as, say, an independent mm. um, in his own seat. Well, the success of One Nation is kind of showing that in Queensland. Uh, I think, you know, if he wanted to join One Nation in Queensland, and we've seen a number of 
uh, LNP state members in Queensland join One Nation recently, mm. then um, that would be quite interesting and quite significant, I think. But then, of course, he's got to work with Pauline Hanson. So whether he wants to put himself <laughs> under the charge of Pauline Hanson mm. in federal parliament, that would be quite interesting. I mean, I think it's most likely that he'll just keep threatening Turnbull because as we've seen with Bernardi, once he leaves, he has no more leverage. So he can't, he can't really demand concessions from the government after he leaves. Um, I mean, yes, there's some numbers on the House of the, the House of Representatives, which means he's, he'll be significant, but they still have enough numbers to pass to pass bills. Yeah, and in terms of um, the the other kind of change that's happened recently, um, is this gold card scenario um, where. Is it true that most politicians were okay with scrapping the gold card, which allowed them, I think it's 10 free return flights every year if they had reached, I think, 20 years yes, uh, in parliamentary the service? the life gold pass. I mean, if you want to look at a parliamentary perk, if you want to look at how out of touch our politicians are, this is probably exhibit A. Mm. Uh, and yes, and most politicians are not on it. They don't have enough time racked up, you know, they haven't been in parliament long enough. But there's a few older members of parliament who are very, very keen on keeping the life gold pass and probably number one amongst them is Ian McFarlane, uh, McDonald's? McDonald's, yeah. McDonald's, sorry. It's too many Ian's. McFarlane's already retired. <laughs> um, he probably has his life gold pass yeah. still, McFarlane. Um, well, Philip Ruddick will certainly have one. Yep, yep. A lot of the old timers um, would it's have It's five them. million, I think, the cost to the budget, so... Yeah, so it's not a big cost to the budget, but it's symbolic, it's isn't it? Mm. It's the, the idea that you still get this free travel even when you're no longer a member of parliament. Um, but yes, uh, Senator Ian McDonald from the LNP up in Queensland has been speaking about it frequently in the Senate, <laughs> trying to defend his privilege there and I think making pretty much a goose of himself, but also demonstrating that, you know, the, the power of self-interest, it's a pretty powerful... It's powerful interest. It's very powerful. Um, and just to check in on this omnibus bill, Ben, we spoke about it last week because uh, it, it's tied to these childcare reforms. Where did we get up to with that? Not too far, basically. The government has proposed a big welfare savings bill that it's called an omnibus bill because I guess the last omnibus bill passed. So they thought, you know, <laughs> why don't... Why don't have another omnibus. Uh, and um, so what they've done is they've packaged up a bunch of legislative changes all together in the one bill and then they're hassling all of the crossbench senators and indeed Labor to pass it. Now, um, some of it, there are things that I think would pass straight away and other bits that will definitely not. Um, and so because they've continued to wrap it all up in one bill, it's dead in the water. Nick Xenophon's come out and said he won't support it. So without Labor and Xenophon, they can't get it through the Senate. Well, do you think this is really um, them being efficient and effective parliamentarians? Are they really ruling Australia and governing well if they keep on almost intentionally wrapping up policies that they know won't pass? The government is very, very keen to pass some of these savings measures and they know that if the savings measures were presented on their own to the Senate, then they would be voted down. But what they're trying to do now is 
uh, package up some good bits with some bad bits and then threaten the Senate and basically say, if you don't pass these things, we'll have to cut funding elsewhere. Like we'll have mm. to cut funding to the NDIS. That's what they threatened last week. Um, or also things like, uh, you know, if you want this uh, childcare package to go through, then you need to give us some savings otherwise. So, you know, give us these welfare cuts and then we'll pass the childcare. And that's the kind of negotiating tactic that they're using. So far, mm. it's not working. No. Well, then it's the Senate's fault if the government can't pass their legislation or that's how they'll frame it. Well, they've they've been blaming the Senate for three and a half years now. In fact, they even had a double dissolution election to try and get a new Senate. That didn't work out so well. Uh, and, and this is the problem with two houses in the parliament. You know, unless you control both houses or unless you can be an effective negotiator like Julia Gillard was, then you can't pass bills then you can't pass the laws of the land. Uh, that is the challenge for parliamentarians in our system. Yeah, well, let's see if they can manage anything <laughs> and hopefully we can get on with governing. Well, they're, they're managing the budget at the moment, so that's the next mm. thing, that's the next big thing coming in down May. the road. Yeah, so in early May we'll have the federal budget and that's looming like the next big set piece. But, of course, between then and now, no doubt, there'll be all sorts of self-inflicted scandals from the coalition because... Really, they've struggled to go more than about a month without some kind of self-inflicted wound or losing a cabinet minister Mm. or some kind of scandal. So I expect probably another one between now and the budget. True. And last time, last year, we had them raise the GST increase the potential of a GST increase before the budget came out to see if it was going to be palatable. Do you think we're going to get some of these various floating of ideas of what might be in the budget to see how people respond? Yes, good question. Uh, They certainly seem to like to sort of float up these ideas and see what's popular and what's not. It's called a focus group though, isn't it? Don't they have those already or...? Well, you'd certainly think so. <laughs> um, I don't know what Mark Text is up to these days, but presumably he's available for hire. Yes. So, yes. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they do poll these kind of measures from time to time. Look, I think it's pretty obvious what needs to happen with the budget. The government needs to raise taxes. Yeah. Uh, it, it's tried to cut spending and failed. It has not cut spending in this government, in the life of this government. Spending is now higher than what it was uh, when Kevin Rudd left office in September 2013 as a percentage of the economy. So if the government is serious about balancing the budget, then it needs to raise taxes. Well, would you scrap the corporate tax that's proposed for, for large businesses and potentially even medium businesses? And then what kind of taxes would you raise, Ben, if in a hypothetical world, if you were leading the country? Right. Well, let me roll my sleeves up here. (laughs) There's a number of things I would do. Yes, the corporate tax cuts would go out the window first. They're gone. Bye-bye. Yeah. The next thing I do would be abolish negative gearing on property. That's about $5 billion a year. That's a handy saving right there. Then I would also get rid of the capital gains tax discount on property. That is several billions, perhaps tens of billions. Uh, We've almost balanced the budget, Ben. You better slow down. No, no, the budget is $36 billion in deficit. Got a bit more to go. Okay, so what else would we go with? Uh, I would introduce a wealth tax. I would Mm. start to tax people with very high net wealths, perhaps over a couple of million or something like that, Um, a small percentage of their wealth every year, not their income, their wealth. Uh, If you want some more ideas, how about an inheritance tax? Uh, People who inherit money from mum and dad, uh, 
almost by definition, they have not worked for that income. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is income to them. Uh, why not? Th- why not they get taxed on that as well? Yeah. What about superannuation tax concessions? That's another biggie. So superannuation tax concessions. These are tax breaks given to, by the taxpayer to people with super. Uh, 70 to 80% of the value of those go straight to the top 10%. So they're very unequal. So yeah, I would I would tighten those and particularly for the top end. Yeah. Uh, that's probably another 10, 15 billion there. Now we're getting all, almost I think we're towards getting serious, yeah. bouncing. Um, you probably could do some stuff on the spending side too. Australia's embarked on an arms race. Mm. Uh, we've bought some very expensive weapons and toys. Uh, you could probably look at that. Well, Nick Xenophon was laughed out of town when he suggested that we spend less on defence and potentially more on welfare. Well, that is pretty rich coming from Nick with his campaign for the submarines to be built in South Australia. However, uh, the principle of it does make sense. Look, I mean, absolutely. I, I, you know... If you want to look at the long-term security of Australia, you need to look not just at our armed security, the defence force, but you have to look at the other aspects of our our national wealth, you know, and and these are often things to do with our education, also diplomacy. You know, I think there's a big imbalance in the spending that we spend on the military and the spending that we spend on embassies and diplomats and languages and things like that relating to our neighbours. So, yeah, there's all sorts of things I could do if I was, uh, you know, the hypothetical (laughs) controller of Australia. But, of course, I'm not a politician and and thank God I'm not because it's a pretty hard job. And, um, you know, and there are political constraints on Mm. the government of the day. And that's the problem for this government in terms of coming up with the next budget. It's very hard for them to raise taxes because they're meant to be the party of low taxes. That said, they just won an election surely they have two more years at least uh, to deal with any flow-on effects of a controversial policy change. Shouldn't this be the time they're a bit courageous? Well, you could equally say that they campaigned on this company tax cut and they won the election, albeit narrowly. So They could still look at those other options though, couldn't they? Absolutely. I mean, they also ruled all of them out in the mm. election campaign. So they certainly promised not to do anything on in terms of super or in terms of property tax concessions. Well, we saw with Tony Abbott in 2014 that his election promises weren't necessarily ironclad. So potentially there's room for movement. Sure, but I mean, obviously he copped a lot of political damage by going back on those promises. I mean, the no cuts to health and education that the coalition, those promises they broke, I mean, that was a big factor in Tony Abbott's downfall. There's no doubt about that. Mm. Well, I don't know. Let's see what happens because I think if they stick with whatever they've promised in the last election, they're not really going to get particularly far in terms of the gridlock that we've got. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the problem for the government at the moment is in terms of the budget, they're basically just hoping. They're hoping the economy picks up and that fixes the budget all of itself. Well, I don't think that's likely to happen. The economy's going okay right now. So, um, you know, maybe it can get better. Yeah, iron ore's a little bit more expensive these days. That helps the budget. Uh, but whether that can get the budget into surplus anytime soon, I mean, you'd have to say no. And the ratings agencies also say no. So the government does need to find some extra money. Now, there's plenty of people who have lots of money that the government is not very keen to tax. And that's probably where I'd start if I was the government. Mm. Well, let's see what happens, Ben. And maybe one day you will enter politics and we can get some more people in there who use evidence as the basis for their policy making and decisions. 
Uh, no plans to enter politics anytime <laughs> soon, Amy. Just baiting you there, Ben. But <laughs> we never know. I could wear you down. I could I could do it coalition style. So we'll see how we go. Uh, I have a young family. Anyone who studies politics knows that it's not great for families. No, definitely not. Uh, we will go to a track. Thanks so much, Ben, for joining us today and delving into the lovely, wonderful world of Canberra politics. Thanks, Amy. And you're listening to 3RRR. I'm Amy Mullins and this show is Uncommon Sense. Uh, This month marks the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. And to mark that date in history, um, which was very significant for Russia and for Europe, the uh, La Trobe University will be hosting a lecture on Thursday the 23rd of February at 6.15pm. Now, the event is already sold out, but it will be streamed live online and it features some very prominent academics who will have a conversation about the Russian Revolution and uh, the role that it played in shaping 20th century history. So I'm very intrigued and looking forward to discuss this with one of the um, people who will be sharing her expertise, Professor Sheila Fitzpatrick. Now, Sheila Fitzpatrick is a highly regarded academic and uh, she's a professor at the University of Sydney and also a distinguished service professor emerita at the University of Chicago. And she's written many books on Stalinism and Soviet Russia, as well as the Russian Revolution. And her most recent book on Stalin's team won the 2016 Prime Minister's Prize for nonfiction. So thank you very much for joining us, Sheila. Well, it's a pleasure. I'm hoping to um, discuss, first of all, the Russian Revolution. So, first of all, World War I hasn't actually officially finished. So, we're still, we're at the latter part of, of World War I, but this revolution happens in 1917. And as we say, it's in February, but I, I believe that the calendars are a bit different then, so it might, might have been in March. But what happened exactly to bring about such a huge tumultuous change in the way that Russia was governed because uh, we see one of the results of many uh, is that Tsar Nicholas II, who was a Romanov, uh, was forced to abdicate his throne and uh, then we moved into a caretaker government. How did Russia get to this point where, you know, they could have such a, a, a huge rising up, a revolution, as they say? Well, it comes in uh, a couple of stages, actually. But the context, the relevant context, is uh, the First World War, because Russia's doing very badly in the First World War. Uh, and it's shown up all the faults of, uh, uh, of, of its um, sort of inadequate uh, organization and preparedness, uh, ability to carry out any, any large-scale undertaking, and therefore discredited the autocracy of which Nicholas II is the current uh, representative. So you had really two levels of um, discontent. The one is in the elites, uh, who are represented in a consultative parliament called the Duma, which Nicholas had unwillingly agreed to. Now, they are very critical, and they are the people uh, who, in February by the old calendar, March by the new calendar, uh, who actually go to Nicholas and say, look, you need to abdicate. Now, the second... um, the second sort of layer of this whole process is discontent on discontent on the streets and a sort of working class and and soldiers and sailors uh, revolution, uh, which 
uh, which is evident already, it's a context of the, uh, of the request to Nicholas to uh, abdicate, but it's, um, it actually, in terms of its product, uh, that product is the second stage of revolution which occurs in October old style, November new style. You mentioned there that Tsar Nicholas II is forced to abdicate. So really there was a, a royal family uh, who were essentially still the the governing body, but as you say, there's the Duma there as well. And then they move into this caretaker government. Who actually takes over? Well, the head of that government is a man called Prince Lvov, LVOV, but he's, he's not really a, a major figure. The person who becomes dominant in it by the summer is a man called Alexander Kerensky, uh, who's a socialist, unlike uh, Lvov, who is a liberal. Uh, and Kerensky hopes to bridge the gap between the, the sort of proletarian forces on the street and the elite forces in the provisional government, uh, in the caretaker government. Uh, and at first he seems to succeed, but then obviously he doesn't because the, the Bolsheviks or communists kick him out in, uh, in October. And what was this form of Bolshevism? What should listeners understand as being Bolshevism in this context? Well, the Bolsheviks, they're going to change their name in 1918 to communists, and so that's probably a bit more understandable. They're a Marxist revolutionary party, and the Marxist part means not only do they think that a working-class revolution, which will establish a socialist regime, is desirable, but they think that it is basically historically inevitable because capitalism is bound to collapse. And we see Lenin become a significant figure in this revolution. When does he come into the picture and what role does he play? Lenin is the leader of the Bolsheviks or, or, or Communist Party from, from its foundation back uh, shortly after the turn of the century. But that party is a very small little party with most of its people in immigration or else in prison or in exile. So it really comes onto the scene in a big way in April when Lenin manages to get back from his exile in Switzerland. Uh, he gets back on the famous sealed train. In other words, the Germans let some revolution back in the hope that they'll destabilize the existing government, which they do. So Lenin comes back, and he comes back into a context where the socialists and the liberals are kind of thinking they should cooperate, they should be working together. And Lenin comes back and he says, no, we're not working with any liberals, we're going to go it alone. So this is the intransigent position he takes. And how does he mobilise support, given that he has such a small party and a band of, of people who have been exiled? Well, you know, it comes to him, essentially. Uh, now, there, there is an intermediate organisation called the, um, the, the Petrograd Soviet, which is an impromptu sort of workers' forum, really, which came into existence at the same time as the provisional government and, in a sense, always had more authority with the mass of the population. Uh, now, when October finally comes, when the Bolsheviks make their move to take over, they do it via the Soviet, having... There having been many signs, actually, of opinion getting more and more radical, more and more unhappy with the provisional government, more and more unhappy with the war, which Russia is still under the provisional government trying to stay in the war. So Lenin is saying, out of the war, break with the liberals, kick the provisional government out and take over. 
Certainly, there were quite a few people that were singled out as not really appreciating their behaviour. You refer um, in one of your journal articles to classes of people who are seen to oppress and exploit the working population and uh, some of them are the aristocrats um, and the priests but also business people and it reminds me of Russian history and concept of serfdom and uh, the operation of serfdom whereby Russians in poverty were working for our aristocrats and were really enslaved by aristocrats but that was all abolished in 1861. There's obviously this discontent that's class-based somewhat, but also were there any residual disagreements or negative feelings towards this history of serfdom? Well, I think it's not only about that, although that's a part of it. All revolutions, sometimes we talk about revolutions as if they were just about the sort of fine slogans about freedom and equality that the leaders put out. Well, they are about that, but they're also about well, hatred, I suppose, hatred and resentment and grievance. And in Russia, the lower classes, uh, working, urban working classes, as well as peasantry, had a lot of grievances. Now, as you say, serfdom had been abolished for the peasants, but they had to pay for their freedom over decades, so they resented that. And, of course, their situation when they finished paying wasn't that great anyway. And so uh, by no means do peasants feel that the that their issue is is satisfactorily dealt with. They basically want full title to the land that they cultivate and they want the landowners out and, and that they, they don't get until basically well into 1917. And that reminds me of a, a quote from your writing which uh, says that acts of vengeance are always part of the revolutionary process. Um, it's certainly understandable that people would feel that that issue hadn't been solved and that they were really um, much, well, they're somewhat better off, but they really had to suffer to actually even get out of that horrible situation. How did the revolution culminate? How much violence was involved in this particular revolution? Well, straight off in October, when the formal seizure of power occurs, which, by the way, takes place in the town in in, Saint Pe- in Petrograd, uh, so it's it's not a rural thing. That um, is uh, is really with with minimum bloodshed because they, the provisional government runs away and uh, uh, and, and the Bolsheviks. It, it's a sort of vacuum of power in which they establish rule, but it's not going to mean anything, of course, until they start getting control of the rest of Russia. Now, all over Russia, there are these Soviets or impromptu councils of workers and peasants, uh, workers and soldiers, and sometimes peasants springing up, and they are in many cases, but in all all cases, of course, going Bolshevik. What happens in the three years after the October Revolution is that the Bolsheviks' assumption of power is contested, uh, including militarily by what are called the Whites. The the Soviets, uh, the Bolsheviks take the title of Reds and the Whites contest it. And so you've got a civil war in which there's also foreign intervention because Russia by now has dropped out of the war. Uh, Its erstwhile allies are not happy about that and they support the white forces. However, uh, by 19, uh, early in 1921, it's clear that the Reds have in fact won. Has this, these factions or different sides, like the Reds and the Whites, have, has that um, sentiment or those beliefs um, prevailed into the next um, iteration of Russia, which becomes Soviet Russia or Stalinist Russia? 
Well, it's the Reds. That, that's the Reds. Uh, I, I mean, the Reds, the Communists, the Bolsheviks, it's uh, different terms for the same group. And uh, Lenin is their first leader, but he dies in 1924, and his successor is Stalin. So there's a direct succession there. Stalin sees himself as the leader of uh, a revolutionary party, which is, um, is going to, uh, as they put it, build socialism, which meant rapidly modernize the economy. What are the echoing effects of the Russian Revolution in Russia itself, uh, politically, but also socially? Well, here we have really an interesting situation because the relationship of, of present-day Russia and Putin's regime to the Russian Revolution is very unclear. And Putin doesn't really know they're embarrassed by this centenary. They don't know how to celebrate it because they're not sure if they're pro or con, you know. Uh, and uh, because Putin likes many things about Soviet rule, but on the other hand, he also has come to feel or says he's come to feel that it was established in a very repressive manner, uh, in an unnecessarily repressive manner. And so he's torn. And so he has been very, very late in announcing the centenary celebrations. They actually announced it in December of last year. That's just two months ago. And they said the details would come out in January. Well, they haven't come out. You know, so they're showing every signs of uneasiness about it. We've got public opinion surveys which show that when asked what their attitude to the revolution is, uh, you get a sizable minority that says they would have fought for the Bolsheviks and a, a, a fairly similar, though slightly smaller group that says they would have fought against the Bolsheviks and a big lot of people who says they just would have tried to survive or they would have tried to emigrate. So Putin has a public opinion that's divided on this issue. And were those people who say that they wouldn't have done anything or they would have sought to just get through the situation, do you think that's pacifism or is that just a lack of interest in um, the ideologies that were driving this? In the sort of folk memory of the revolution as it stands now, uh, as far as we can see, the overwhelming memory is that there was terrible suffering. No matter who was right or who was wrong, no matter if you were living in, under red territory or white territory, ordinary people suffered. Uh, enormously, and their lives became uh, worse and didn't improve for many years. And that's so that's their memory. Stronger, it, it appears to be stronger in that sort of central majority group uh, than any kind of actual allegiance to one side or the other. Just the feeling how we suffered. And in terms of the way that this history is remembered by historians, how have historians um, been talking about the revolution since it came about? And has the way that historians have treated this event changed at all? Well, you know, the, the peak period of historians' interest in the revolution was back in the 1960s, 70s, uh, during the Cold War, uh, when social historians were... Well, the Cold War sort of... Um, general sort of assumption, a conventional wisdom back then, was that the Soviet regime, the communist regime, was illegitimate and they had seized power by a coup, uh, a coup d'etat in October. Now, the social historians in the 60s and 70s, they were saying, but look, they had an awful lot of popular support at that time, no matter how bad they were later. When they took power, they had a lot of popular support. So that was the big, and therefore they had a certain legitimacy. 
Uh, that was a big argument back then. All through the Cold War, up to 1989 and, and uh, 91, a, a large part of the world, if you remember, was under communist governments, which claimed a sort of dissent from the Russian Revolution. So that made it seem a tremendously important event in the 20th century. But when a third of the world, you know, was was under regimes in, uh, influenced by it. But then all that all collapsed. And so, you know, all we have left now, uh, you know, China and North Korea and the Chinese aren't looking so very revolutionary. So historians react to that. I think they react to the sense that the revolution has now looks a whole lot less relevant than it did because its product, its results are so much, uh, have proved not lasting despite the earlier expectations. And in terms of um, your work as a historian, how significant do you think the Russian Revolution is in understanding where Russia is today? Obviously it has some bearing, but just how much of a bearing does it have? I think it has an enormous bearing. Right when the Soviet Union collapsed in 91, uh, the Russian population behaved in a way very oddly. Uh, They wanted to forget that there ever had been 74 years of Soviet power. They just wanted to reconnect basically with, uh, well, with the old Tsarist regime or, or, or a Russian past that didn't include communism. But you can't do that. I mean, something that happened to you or either an individual or a country, it's simply there and it's got to be processed. And what we've seen since is a sort of under Putin, uh, who Putin is, uh, well, just to backtrack a little bit, 1991 was a humiliation for the Soviet Union. You know, it lost its, I mean, for the Russians. They lost their empire. They lost their superpower status. Uh, that This was taken very hard by the population. Now, Putin, as I think uh, probably many other rulers in his place would do, is trying to build up that sense of national pride again and say we have a glorious past and we're going to, you know, get back and have a glorious future. Now, if he's going to say he's got a glorious past, he can't leave out the winning of the Second World War which the Russians feel, you know, was definitely a Russian achievement. So you can't leave out the Second World War, therefore you can't leave out Stalin. Stalin as a nation builder. But exactly how that relates to the revolution is the bit that's the problem. Yes, and certainly Putin has been emphasising unity and that uh, Russia is united. How much unity do you think there currently is in Russia around the current government? Well, they've got very high approval ratings. So I guess you have to say that um, it's, um, you know, he's got quite a solid position at the moment. Now, it's interesting you mentioned his unity message. Now, that is being floated about the revolutionary celebrations very strongly. Putin is saying this is a chance not to be partisan, not to gloat over old factions or whatever, but to think about reconciliation, reconciliation of all kinds of, of, of all groups in Russia. That's, that's our big task and he actually there is a proposal but they don't seem to have kind of got it off the ground for a reconciliation monument as um, you know the French on the uh, bicentenary uh, on the centenary sorry of their revolution uh, they built the Eiffel Tower so there's a proposal to build uh, some kind of reconciliation monument down in the Crimea but I you know they haven't as I say they haven't funded it they haven't picked a site they haven't really got going. 
It certainly sounds like a sensitive topic, but also that's a sensible solution. Certainly, it sounds like there does need to be some sort of reconciliation and a way of processing what's happened in the past. And as we see, Russia is still on the Security Council, so they haven't completely lost superpower status um, and potentially they'll they'll continue to grow in power with uh, Putin as president. That's their hope, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Sheila, for joining us and really um, sharing some fascinating insights into the Russian Revolution and uh, Russian modern and contemporary history. Well, thank you. And you're listening to 3RRR. Uh, this is Uncommon Sense with Amy. And we now have a very special guest and I just can't wait to have this chat Uh Bob Inglis is a former US Republican congressman um, and he is also now the founder of Republican RepublicN.org uh, and he has a very interesting story. He's here in Australia as a guest of the Australia Institute and he joins us on the phone. Thank you so much, Bob, for joining us. Great to be with you, Amy. Thank you. Um, so... First of all, how are you enjoying Australia? I saw some um, pictures on Instagram. I think you were in Tasmania recently. Yes, we spent the weekend uh, in and around Hobart. So um, I got to ride most of the way up to Mount Wellington and uh, uh, then the daylight started failing us um, <laughs> and uh, got to go to the Botanical Gardens there. Really, really beautiful place. And some and very large, tall trees. Oh, yeah, we got to see that in, in the sticks. Uh, we did that. Uh, that was awesome, too. And uh, that really kind of segues into, um, you know, your now your passion for um, the environment uh, and, and the journey that you took to come to this uh, particular position that you have today. Um, in terms of, first of all, just a bit of a, a context for our, our listeners, um, you have s referred to um, the, the seat that you held in Congress as one of the reddest in the country. Uh, it's in South Carolina. And, uh, and you were a congressman for two separate periods um, in the 90s and also in the mid-thousands. Um, and you had a, a moment, or actually a few moments of revelation or um, shift in your worldview on climate change and the environment. Could you just share um, what, where you started from on this issue and where you got to? What were the pivotal moments? Yeah, so, you know, for the first six years that I was in Congress, um, I took a really very ignorant position, actually. I, I didn't know anything about climate change except that Al Gore was for it. And inasmuch as I represented uh, quite a conservative district in South Carolina, um, that was the end of the inquiry for me. So uh, I admit that's a fairly ignorant uh, way to approach it, but that's what I did for six years. And then I was out of Congress for six years doing commercial real estate law again. Um, I ran again in '04, and as I was running, uh, my son came to me. He's the oldest of our five children, and he just turned 18, so he's voting for the first time. And he said to me, uh, Dad, I'll vote for you, but you're going to clean up your act on the environment. Uh, so it's the first of a three-step metamorphosis for me. And, and by the way, Amy, some people think he's making a threat. My, my son was going to vote for me no matter what. We were more mortgaging the farmette that we live on. You know, a, a farmette's when you're not really making a living at farming. You just play like a farmer. But we were mortgaging the farmette. Um, he was going to vote for me no matter what. But what he's really saying was, Dad, I love you. 
and you can be better than you were in the first time in Congress. So let's make this English 2.0, the new and improved version. And so that was the first step. Second step was going to Antarctica with the, to, to see the ice core evidence uh, with the science committee. And um, uh, then the third step was um, uh, really a spiritual awakening here in Australia, another science committee trip. We were at the Great Barrier Reef with uh, Scott Herod, an Aussie climate scientist, showing me uh, the effects of coral bleaching. And um, I could tell that he and I shared a worldview before any words were spoken, because I could see that he was worshiping God in what we were seeing. Um, and so afterwards we had a chance to talk. He told him about conservation changes he was making in his life in order to love God and love people. And uh, I got right inspired. I wanted to be like Scott, loving God and loving people. So I went home and introduced a revenue-neutral, border-adjustable carbon tax, which was probably not good political timing, seeing as how the global financial crisis was on. It was the reddest district and the reddest state in the nation, and it did not go well. Um, I got tossed out of Congress in a Republican primary, a pre-selection process, in June of 2010. So uh, that, that's uh, that's uh, one, two, three-step uh, conversion and then tossed out of Congress. <laughs> so you uh, you had a lot of political courage, as they might say, and uh, and really staked your um, political career on this issue, which is a pretty um, big thing for any politician to do. Um, and as you say, you introduced the the Raise Wages and Cut Carbon Act in two thousand and nine, um, which uh, the US was in a recession at that point. Um, there was a forum that you spoke at um, to your constituents, where uh, a great deal of your constituents um, very much uh, started booing when you said that you believed in the climate science and that Australians, not Australians, sorry, that humans um, were the cause of uh, global warming or certainly contributed to it. Um, how did you, when you saw this response to your constituents, um, what were your thoughts about it? And did you think, okay, well, now I've just got to ride out my term and, um, you know, I, I probably won't get back in? Well, it's great, great research. If you've seen that clip, it really was yeah. quite a moment. It was quite a moment. So, uh, uh, yeah, the uh, you know, yes or no? Do you believe that in human causation, climate change? You know, and I had a terrible habit, of, Amy, of answering questions. So I said yes, um, and that did not go well. But you know what? What I what I'd say is this: um, pity the souls who serve in Parliament or in Congress and get to the end of a very long career and look themselves in the mirror as they're leaving that place and realize they stood for nothing. I pity that soul um, because it's so much better to, to stand for something and risk getting thrown out because if you're not really willing to risk your seat in Congress or in Parliament, you're really not leading. And so you're pretty useless to the whole process if you're not willing to lead. So, um, you know, so I, I, I really don't regret it. I mean, it's, 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 I wish that it worked out differently and that I might still be in Congress. But on the other hand, I'm able now to be about something that's big enough to be about. And that, uh, that's about all you can ask for in a work life, isn't it? 
Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you're in Australia because I, I know that Australian politicians could certainly do with some of this sage advice. Um, and one of the uh, speeches that you gave in the Environment Committee towards the end of your career was about saying that, um, you know, politicians and in this particular committee, you're on the record and that our grandchildren um, will look back and see what I stood for and what you stood for. And I hope that you'll be on the record um, in supporting action on climate change. Um, and it was a really strong um, and moving uh, speech because I think that's really lost in the current debate when we start um, the politics of fear. Um, and one of the interesting um, things that, that I've seen you say is that responsibility. you say responsibility brings guilt. Um, and so that's kind of one of the, the uh, responses that some of your constituents might have felt is that um, their, their fear of feeling guilty for having contributed to climate change. Uh, but that guilt without redemption brings paralysis. Uh, and your view is, well, what if there is redemption and and then you, you propose a solution um, for redemption? And I think that's a really interesting way of framing it and looking at um, our human responses to this issue. What is yeah, your that, solution? Oh, sorry, go ahead, Bob. Yeah, it's so important. Well, yeah, at the end, wonderful that you've done such great research on this. Yeah, because it, it, it is guilt without redemption is what brings paralysis. And so if we think we can't get out of this spot, then we're paralyzed. And denial is a pretty good coping mechanism. But if, we, if you tell me that there's a chance that we can do better, that we can have prosperity and have more energy, more mobility, more freedom and just cleaner... Um, then, then I can sign on to that. But if you tell me that I'm consigned to a future where we continue to use just the fossils, um, then I'll just deny the existence of any problems associated with the burning of those fossils. But, you, you know, by, by the way, Amy, a very important Australian connection to what you just described, which is that... Um, where I heard that, let's get this on the record, was from Kim Beasley, who was Australia's ambassador to the United States. And I realized that uh, here I am, a conservative Republican, quoting Kim Beasley, a mm -hmm. Labor Party member. But isn't that okay? I mean, it was, it's a very important statement from Kim Beasley. He, he says when, when he runs into people, this is what I got so interested in and what I used in that vignette you're talking about at the Science Committee. He told me that uh, when he runs into people who dispute the science of climate change, he, he says, let's make sure to get this on the record because I want my grandchildren and your grandchildren to know what I was saying and what you were saying. And it's just such an important concept that really people are going to know where we stood. And so, um, and it is, it's also reflective of, you know, the current problem. I, I know in America and perhaps here in Australia is, you know, a, a conservative can't quote a Labor Party member because, uh, you know, you got to draw battle lines. But it's a real keen insight from Kim Beasley, and I'm happy to use it. Well, that's a glowing uh, recommendation and endorsement. Um, and that you're absolutely right. In Australia, it's the same. Um, there is a very tribal um, um, 
orthodoxy of how to behave and to approach this issue and it's very ideological. Uh, we're currently seeing our energy debates um, have a great deal of I- ideology and, and facts aren't necessarily uh, in the mix uh, or as, as we now have alternative <laughs> facts. <Yeah. laughs> just entered the vocabulary. Um, but uh, one of the things that uh, you mentioned is that conserv- so as, as we see there is this divide between Republicans and uh, Democrats and we've seen the um, Obama reforms about clean energy and uh, we don't know whether those will continue under a Trump administration or whether the Paris Climate Agreement will remain um, a, a key priority for the US. But your view is, um, and I quote from one of your articles, is that conservatives in America will join the conversation when the talk is conducted in the language of abundance. And that is the kind of language that you use in this, these policy propositions that you've been putting forward and that you know, you're now advocating through uh, Republican, is that uh, it's about looking to the future and getting an, a competitive edge uh, and really growing the economy. And that's, I guess, something that Australia has been trying to uh, put forward or a lot of the people in the renewable and energy industry. Um, could you expound a little more on, on that view and, and how the views that you put forward are essentially conservative? Yeah. So at republicen.org, what we advocate is a, a, a way of bringing accountability to all the fuels. What we would do uh, is eliminate all the subsidies for all the fuels. Um, in America, we have, for example, an electric car credit, $7,500 you get if you buy an electric car uh, off of your taxes. We'd eliminate that. We'd eliminate all the props for wind and solar. And so far, I mean, that sounds terrible to wind and solar and renewables. But then we'd eliminate also the biggest subsidy of them all, the, the granddaddy subsidy which is being able to burn fossil fuels without any accountability for the emissions. If you put those costs on, uh, attribute those costs, attach those to the burning of those fossil fuels, that's the economic fix that changes everything for the environment. What we believe at RepublicEN.org is what we have here is a problem of economics that has an environmental consequence. Uh, the environmental left in, in America tends to focus on the environment. We, in the eco-right, as we call it, a balance to the environmental left, um, say it's about economics. Fix the economics and the environment will take care of itself. So we're for eliminating all the subsidies, including that biggest one of all, which is the ability to, 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 to belch and burn into the trash dump of the sky without paying any tipping fee for the damages you're causing there. So if you put the tipping fee on it, suddenly the renewables are competitive without any props, without any clean energy funds, without any any subsidies of any sort, without any mandates. They're just competitive because now coal and petroleum are really accountable. So we, we believe, Amy, that this is a message that conservatives in America and hopefully in other countries too can embrace is that we really believe in accountability. That's sort of a, a hallmark of conservatism. We think that blessings flow from accountability and havoc results when you don't have accountability. And what we have in the climate system right now is havoc because of the lack of accountability. So it's a, we do it differently than President Obama. He was going to do a, a regulatory approach. Uh, we do it differently than cap and trade. That was a, uh, that was a 
pretty complicated system in America. We'd make it a simple carbon tax and then refund all the money back to the people, either in the form of dividend checks cut quarterly or um, in other tax reductions. So it's revenue neutral. And then probably the big, big impact on Australia here is that we would apply that tax to imports. We think China would challenge in the World Trade Organization but we think we'd beat them in the in the WTO, and after we beat them, they'd follow suit because otherwise, on entry of their goods into the United States, they'd be paying a carbon tax that would be remitted to Washington. They could have collected that tax at home and remitted it to Beijing. So, 24 hours after the WTO upholds our our border adjustable carbon tax, China would do the same thing. And so then the whole world would be on it, and it really would change, I think, the economics, particularly for the extractive industries here in Australia. So you're talking about um, emissions-intensive exports that are going into America and being imported into America um, would have a carbon tax placed on it by America and in that sense um, really force the hand of other governments um, by the US taking the lead. Correct. It's, and that's why, you know, some people would say, Amy, this is this nuts. There's no way English, this guy talking right now, is going to get Donald Trump to do that. But think about it. It really does sort of fit with what he says about America first and America is going to lead and China is going to follow. Um, is, is You can hear him saying it at a rally. I mean, I can say it very diplomatically and prefer to say it that way. But I can hear Donald Trump taking my our idea at republicen.org, and, and by the way, it's the idea of many others as well. It's, it's not just us, um, and turn it into a populist message that actually works and that accomplishes something. Because you know what? It is right. It's, this is what I've heard in Australia, and it's true. I heard in America is if Australia acts on its own or America acts on its own, we're accomplishing really very little. It's essential to get China and the rest of the world in on this thing. And so the way to do that is a muscular, bold move by the United States to say, we're going forward, we're going to do a carbon tax. If you don't have one in your country, you will pay it on entry into the United States. So now make your own decisions. You can either have that money and collect it at home, or we'll happily collect the carbon tax on entry of your goods into our country because we've got a deficit and we'd like the money, thank you. So you can hear Donald Trump saying that at a rally. And if he does, and if he makes that decision, then things could really change in the economics, especially of coal. Well, it is very bold, <laughs> and uh, even in a in an American context where um, it you know it is a, a minimalist interventionist type of government uh, in general, even for Democrats, um, and you know Australia has has a bit more of a larger government approach um, in general. But you, as you say, there are other groups who are also lobbying for this. Um, the Climate Leadership Council is one of them um, that you that you and your organisation are working with. And something that uh, that has come up, as you say, is, is Donald Trump and his kind of renegade approach to um, policy. Do you think that the, the constituents who were against um, your proposal when you put it forward would be more amenable um, to a Trump pop proposition of this kind? Do you, what do you see as being the arguments that anyone would um, put against it? 
I think the main attra- the main attraction would be the lack of any need for an international agreement. Um, you know, if, 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 if Donald Trump decided to do what I just I just uh, talked about, it would require no international agreement. It'd just be the United States acting very boldly, and then China challenging the World Trade Organization. We think at RepublicEN.org losing in the WTO, and then them following suit. And after China gets in with America, the rest of the world is going to follow. Because if you're doing business anywhere in the world, you're probably doing business with China and the United States. And so uh, the, the main attraction, I think, would be it fits with his sort of America first kind of rhetoric. And it's not the rhetoric that I like to use, but you can see how it could fit at one of his rallies. So essentially, um, Trump needs to to sell something like this to uh, climate deniers who may be in his um, in his supporter base. Yeah, and of course, there's some climate realists. Uh, we call ourselves at RepublicEN.org, ener- energy optimist and climate realist. And there's some climate realists in his administration. Most important of which is Rex Tillerson, the new Secretary of State who as recently as October 19th, 2016, was advocating for exactly what we're talking about at RepublicEN.org and with the Climate Leadership Council that Secretaries Scholz, Bolt, Baker, and uh, Paulson are talking about. And so um, we think there's some hope on the inside that Rex Tillerson would um, uh, w- would help uh, push the president uh, toward, toward this outcome. Well, as you say, he said that, and, and that was when he was uh, CEO of ExxonMobil, um, which is an oil and gas company, and uh, he saw the profit um, involved in that, in kind of levelling the playing field, um, and uh, and obviously gas uh, has less emissions than coal. Um, how do you think uh, you will prosecute this argument um, and, and those your coalition, I guess, of, um, of like-minded Republicans prosecute this argument um, publicly, but also how would you manage to to lobby for this? Well, what, what we think we need to do at RepublicEN.org is go to the people um, that are like us, actual conservatives, with credible messengers and affirm their truth. Tell them that they're really good, that they've got good ideas, that we have good ideas. In other words, that we conservatives aren't the laggards here. It's just that the solutions that have been proposed so far in America have been big government solutions. There's a small government solution available. It's a simple fix of the market condition. It's it's a transparency accountability move. And so it's completely consistent with what conservatives believe. So, But in order to make progress, we have to go to them with credible messengers and affirm their truth. It would, if, if, if progressives uh, in America try to speak to conservatives, they typically speak down to us. They, they act like they're policy and they're halos and looking down on us, the sinners. Well, that's not very attractive. So we go to conservatives and say, hey, we're we're like you. We're one of you. We are you, and and you know what? We got a good idea. We do. We conservatives, and so let's raise our hand in class. We're the kid with the answer. And the good news, Amy, is that there are many progressives who accept this idea as well. So um, it's, for example, what we're talking about, and what Secretary Schulz, Baker, and Paulson are talking about is precisely what Al Gore has been advocating for about 30 years now. 
So it really is possible to bring America together, we believe, um, and um, lead, hopefully, the world to a transparent, accountable marketplace where we end up with 7 billion consumers around the world demanding better, cleaner, faster, cheaper energy, better storage, better solar and the money that will flow into the R&D at that point in the commercialization will create exciting opportunities in business to make money and to serve customers with distributed energy systems that light up the world with more energy, more mobility, more freedom. Certainly, um, this really does sound like a, a strong and uh, a bold, slightly radical uh, to some proposal in America, but it could work based on the economy and the type of entrepreneurial spirit um, you have in your market. Um, just finally, do you see that you need to or would want to bring a, Democrats alongside with you on this issue? Definitely. We, 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 as I just said, um, Al Gore has been for this for about 30 years. Of course, sitting what we first had, people and, and those people currently sitting? Yeah, and, and there are. In fact, for example, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island is a Democrat um, who's, uh, who's boldly introduced essentially what I'm describing here. Um, and another, John Delaney, a Democrat from Maryland in the House in America, has introduced the same bill. And so, yeah, there are people currently serving on the Democratic side who are willing to work with us as conservatives and create a solution that fits with conservative values because they want to solve the climate challenge. And at the end of the day, isn't that what we're trying to do? We gotta come together and figure out a solution. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Bob, for joining us. It's been absolutely fascinating and uh, a, a very interesting, pragmatic approach, which um, it's really great to hear an alternate view and an alternate solution to this. So thank you for joining us and for, for going on a tour around Australia to share your views. Uh, well, thank you for having me on and for the wonderful hospitality here in Australia. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Thanks so much, Bob. Bye-bye. And you're listening to 3RRR. I'm Amy Mullins and the show is Uncommon Sense. Um, and yeah, we uh, we have a fantastic guest on um, today who um, who's actually a former colleague of uh, a guest we had only two weeks ago, ago Hugh McKay, and he features um, throughout uh, Rebecca Huntley's book, which is called Still Lucky, Why You Should Feel Optimistic About Australia and Its People. Um, so we're going to delve right in. But first of all, thanks, Rebecca, for joining us. Thank you for having me, Amy. It's a pleasure. Um, so, Rebecca, you have been a social researcher and conducting a lot of qualitative research um, into Australians and what they're talking about and what they're thinking about and also what um, are their priorities um, in life. Uh, how did you get into this research, first of all, and what um, what really started to get get you passionate about um, about hearing from Australians and what makes them tick? Well, I was, um, in a sense, an academic researcher. So I, I did a PhD in a, a research honours and um, was a research, did it with a research assistant for a lot of academics and thought I'd be an academic researcher. Um, and then 
while I was actually writing a book about young Australians, so I was probably the one responsible for that normal, anno- annoying Generation Y tag <laughs> that I wish we could all live behind. But this is about 10 years ago I started writing a book about young Australians. And I, I happened to be invited to a, a lunch and, and was sat next to Hugh McKay and we got talking. And um, we'd have regular coffees. And then he suggested that, you know, one way forward for me if I didn't want to be an academic um, or didn't want to wait for 10 years to get an academic position, which is often what happens, um, that I might be interested in the kind of work he did. So he really introduced me to social market research and, and, um, and then I, you know, he was very much keen to start focusing a little bit more on his fiction writing, although he does miss the social research because he keeps coming back to it. He sure but does. I essentially took over running what was once called the McKay Report and is now called the Mind and Mood Report. And you've been doing that for quite a long time. Um, and the research that you draw on um, is, is at, well, the research that you've been conducting is 10 years worth? Yeah, so I started the work about about 10 years ago and um, worked for Ipsos, which was a company that basically bought the Mind and Mood report. And then on my maternity leave with my twins, I, I resigned from Ipsos. It was kind of nearly, nearly close to a decade of doing that kind of very, very broad... Um, undirected qualitative research um, and, uh, you know, learned an enormous amount, travelled Australia, met extraordinary people. And now I'm doing, still doing social research, but for a different company, a company that does, particularly does work with, I suppose, um, you know, unions and uh, the environment movements are very much left of centre organisations, you know, basically social research trying to change the world, which is um, ambitious but, you know, enjoyable. So, yeah, but this is really, Still Lucky is really a chance for me to look back for almost a decade of um, listening to Australians talk about their lives. So it started with a book that it started with the Generation Y book, which I basically did on my own before I started, you know, working as a social market researcher. And kind of ends with um, a little bit of research that I, in fact, did on my own again um, after I'd left Ipsos, which was around talking to people living in the, the inner city of, of Sydney about politics and housing affordability. So those were those were the two bookends, interestingly. I mean, almost kind of going back to the same kind of age cohort, people in their 20s talking about some of the, the challenges they face in life. And in the book, um, it really is interesting because uh, it certainly jogs my memory as to the various policy debates that were happening under um, Prime Ministers from the end of uh, John Howard's reign in 96 down to present day. with the the type of um, research you do, which, as you say, it's um, you're really observing and you're not directing um, the the groups of people who are usually known to each other, friends and community groups, um, who sit and have a chat about uh, what they've been talking about recently and what's on their mind. Um, and how how do you think this kind of research, which informs um, your book, uh, has really um, has really I don't gleaned additional insights that we might not get from something like a quantitative poll or focus group. Yeah, look, it's interesting. I mean, I think it's important to divide, you know, to separate quantitative research from qualitative research in this respect. So, I mean, quantitative research is, uh, and you know, polls have been, you know, are getting a bad rap <laughs> <laughs> at the moment, and and there's, 
you know, I think there's a mixture of reasons around that. I mean, one of the reasons why is that kind of, you know, anybody with SurveyMonkey can do a poll. And um, and there's lots of, you know, media around saying you can't trust polling. And, and there's obviously things called robo-polls, which are maybe some of your listeners have been subjected to, sometimes very accurate, sometimes not. But, but quantitative research essentially looks to to quantify people's attitudes and and um, sometimes it gives a very fulsome picture of how people feel and sometimes it it raises as many questions as it is it answers you know um, and then qualitative research that in that as again your listeners might be might kind of have perception about what that is you know a whole lot of strangers in a seminar room with a with a one-way mirror being, you know, taken through a lot of very probing questions by a discussion, you know, discussion guide by a, a facilitator. I mean, I do that kind of research and that research is, can be really useful. But again, there's perceptions that, you know, basically, um, you know, you, you get the answer you want by forcing people to respond to things which they haven't thought much about and um, saying, do you really think, or how do you feel about this and, and, and that people will just say stuff to get their money and their piece of pizza and, and to go off into the, the night. So, um, you know, certainly the research that we've done is, is more about being participant-led. You know, you don't have an agenda, you just let that group that already know each other very well and can probably sense check what everybody says, you know, because they're, they, um, they're familiar with each other's opinions and so forth is, is, is one way of getting at a, a different kind of truth, I suppose. And so all of these ways of doing research are legitimate and, and it's about how you combine them and how you use them together. I think one of the most useful things about um, the kind of research I've mainly done for the last 10 years is that is that it, it, it allows you sometimes to really work out what people would choose to talk about if you're not the person asking the question. So it's always interesting to me. I'll give you a really, really obvious example. Um, there was a week that I was in, myself and my team were in fields um, doing groups. It, was, it happened to be the week, one of the weeks of a challenge between um, Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard, of which I'm... Um, Kevin Rudd was not successful. But of course, all the media was screaming about this challenge and, you know, couldn't turn on the TV or the radio and not hear about it. Interestingly, all the groups we were doing that week, including in Queensland, were, you know, when we asked people, what's on your mind? What are you thinking about? I mean, nobody raised that. Nobody raised the fact that at the end of the week we could have a different Prime Minister. And it was so intriguing to me, you know, all of my researchers said, you know, it's just not coming up. Um, at the end, we said, "Oh, you know, what do you what do you think about what might happen? You know, we might have a new prime minister." And and some people were like, "Oh, well, that's got nothing to do with us." They saw a real disconnection between what was happening in Canberra that was obviously significant and their lives. Now, had you done a poll and asked them, you know, who do you support or what do you think is happening? If you directly asked them, they would have given you a response. But what was more illuminating is that they actually weren't talking about it, showed you not only how disconnected and they were about it, how... Um, and that, to me, spoke, spoke volumes. In fact, it was more, that was more significant than all the reams of information you would have gotten had you said, do you want Kevin Rudd or Julia Gillard to be Prime Minister? And it was at that moment I knew the Labor Party, regardless of who was going to be leader, was going to lose the next election because they'd lost the attention of the electorate.
Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that uh, you talk about in your book um, in the Rudd era is the global financial crisis and that um, that Australians had, they kind of shifted uh, their view of the financial crisis over a fairly short in the scheme of things uh, period of time. Um, and they were fairly optimistic at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, there was a sense of, you know, we'll be okay or, you know, and this is significant, but perhaps we'll, we'll be all right. Then they went very quickly into, no, 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 this is going to be, you know, a recession like the Great Depression to very quickly recovering and, and then um, looking and almost thinking like, oh, we were always going to avoid the GFC because of the mining boom and, you know, our banks are well regulated and so forth. So, And then immediately went back to some of the kind of pre-GFC concerns. And then there was... a after that again a very interesting um next development which was like well you know we dodged a bullet there but are we ever going to dodge that again and there's some real issues in terms of you know let's say budget repair and how we invest in infrastructure and are we making this appropriate transition from being an economy that's about you know what we dig up from under the ground and the kind of traditional industries that have supported us to a new kind of economy that can really compete in a changing you know global marketplace and so forth so what's always interesting and and again the the consumer confidence figures or the unemployment figures or the debates in in the newspapers and the you know opinion columns don't necessarily reflect what's happening in that kind of very broad mood and some and to some extent that that shift from from cautious optimism to pessimism back to optimism back to um a more kind of long-term anxiety about where we're going as a as a country that in a sense was slightly unpredictable and not necessarily being registered in the media and political discussion um that was happening yeah, and I mean, you mentioned there the mining boom, and that's one of the things which um, which you say most of Australians agree on is that mining is part of our economy, but it's certainly not going to be the main driver of growth anymore. And that uh, in 2014, um, by that point, Australians really believed the boom uh, part of it had was essentially over. Um, and one of the things that you, you then say um, in the book, and I quote, is that Australians are hoping that what remains of our luck will hold on until we find leaders game enough or desperate enough to bring about reforms that will create something better. I think that that really summarises the current feeling. Is that your view, Rebecca? Um, yes. I mean, I think I think we got a lot in the last election and I wrote some of this book um, through that election, but not all of it. We got a lot of the last election about um, innovation and being agile and the importance of innovation and growth, but not a lot of detail, not a, not a lot of meat on the bone. So even though that that theme would resonate with people, they really want to know, well, what does that actually mean? And for, I've got to say, the majority of the people that I've talked to over the last 10 years, this shift from an, a kind of an old economy to a newer economy that's innovative and agile and so forth um, requires investment, investment of government in a couple of areas. One is in education at every level, including TAFE, and including supporting people who, supporting workers who are apprentices, and, and that is, there's a lot to be done in that area. Um, it includes supporting companies who employ Australians. 
um, um, and don't just move in all of their, you know, a lot of their operations offshore to make a to make more of a profit. Um, it includes um, investment in infrastructure, you know. So you can talk about things like regional development, but if you and you know regional jobs, but unless you really invest in the infrastructure to make that happen, including a world class. Um, NBN, then all of that kind of language seems pretty hollow. So, yeah, I think that there is, there's a lot of talk about shifting to a new kind of economy and, but when the electorate is asked to identify policy areas or policy ideas or an investment plan that's going to make that happen, they do struggle. Mm. And in terms of investing money, um, there is this tension between what people want um, and and then what they're willing to give up or how much they think it's worth. Um, Yeah, exactly. And that is kind of, I guess, the social democratic contract that we initially had um, that was probably a lot more solid than it is now um, around, well, we we believe that we should have world-class healthcare and world-class education, um, but are we willing to raise taxes and revenue to ensure that we really have enough funds? And as we see, we've got a government that doesn't believe in revenue problems. Um, yep. How how are how are Australians in their in their lounge rooms actually, um, you know, grappling with this particular conflict between what they want and what they they're willing to give up? Yeah, it's a really important point. I mean, we can all come up with great ideas, but then when it really comes to the point of saying, okay, what are you prepared to give up? What are you prepared to sacrifice? Then that's really the hard case of reform. Um, Environmental questions are the perfect example. You know, we can have, and there was a poll put out today, in fact, by the Essential Report that said that, you know, over 70% of those polls, 70% of Australians believe that the government isn't doing enough to invest in in renewables. And so that's a laudable, you know, that's a laudable um, attitude to have. And it's great that the majority of the population believe that. But what are they prepared to to de- what are they prepared to take on? Do, will they will they um, will they kind of cop the idea of a renewable energy tax on their petrol bill? A whole range of things, you know. So that's that is the difficult um, that is the nub of what it is to be a leader, and that is the nub of what it is to be a persuader. I think the electorate is open to persuasion, but the biggest barrier, and it's as much the problem of politics as it is to the electorate, is the cynicism about politicians and the cynicism about why they're in politics and the cynicism about the two-party system. And I have to say, I mean, I say at the end of the book, one of the real problems and one of the things I'd really like um, us to change, and by us I mean the governed, not the governors, is this kind of, you know persistent cynicism, almost like perverse cynicism to see all politicians as in it for their own reason. And we're very short-tempered. We've got, we have got, even though we talk about where we want to be Australia, where we want Australia to be in in the medium to long term, we can articulate that and talk about it. We are resistant to change. Maybe that's an Australian thing. Maybe that's a human thing. Um, we really need to be able to push past um, that immediate resistance and and be taken along in the conversation about reform. I mean, but there are really good indicators of health here. I'll give you a perfect example. You know, there was a lot of stuff around, you know, the electorate, the, for example, the carbon tax, what it ended up being called the carbon tax, being highly unpopular with the electorate. You know, there was poll after poll about that. 
I would say that was as much about their perception about Julia Gillard and the electoral result and the idea that she lied about what she was going to do in relation to that. There was a lot of there was a lot tied up in that attitude to the carbon tax that wasn't just about a tax on carbon. What was interested in the quality of research is leading up to the moment the carbon tax was implemented, there was quite a lot in the groups that was anti-carbon tax. The moment it was law, it just dropped away. It stopped being a conversation. Really just stopped being a conversation at all. And in fact, when the, when the other government got rid of the carbon tax, there was no discussion in the group about that either. So, you know, I think there is something, and there's a lot in behavioural economics about... If you have the permission from the electorate, if they believe something's important, if you decide on a policy that addresses that, even if there's initial resistance and change and antagonism, you'll often find that once it happens, some of that antagonism dries away. They go, oh, well, it's happened, and happened with the GST. Perfect example. Very, very unpopular. Implemented, no one talks about it anymore. Mm. So maybe that's a human thing, a, per, uh, um, a personal thing. The difficulty for politicians is with people like me. They're constantly being polled every week, right? And their colleagues who want to get, who want to support them or get rid of them are constantly waving these polls in the, in the corridors of parliament. And so if you're constantly, ter- it's like having a performance review every week. Can you imagine how difficult it would be to do your job if every week you had to front up to the CEO who said, well, all these people said you didn't do this this week. It's very, very hard. So we've got a really, really difficult environment for reform, um, but the need for reform, particularly reform that will be difficult and will require people to sacrifice, is never been more important. Mm, well, it's very hard to take a long-term view when your KPIs are based around yeah. polling numbers. <laughs> yeah, it's based around whatever the next poll is. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And and one of the things that um, we chatted about this morning was um, that you know Malcolm Turnbull is still in the first year of his um, his government in this particular um, cycle, and that potentially now is the time to take a courageous decision um, and ride it out for the next couple of years in in the hope that maybe things would die down. Do you think Australians um, would be open to that kind of approach? Um, look, they were in. They would have been enormously open to that approach as soon as he became prime minister. Mm. If he was, if he recognised the gift that that was, and um, and had done a range of things in relation to, uh, well, you know, could pick six or seven different policy issues, then he could have built some extraordinary momentum around um, around being seen as somebody who was a, a person of action and able to kind of follow through and, and potentially also take his party, um, you know, to the slightly more... slightly more to the centre rather than the right. The unfortunate thing about doing that now, um, it's quite difficult. He's been Prime Minister for a long time and there's a lot of um, dissatisfaction from various degrees, you know, and part of it is the the problem when there's high expectations. You know, I mean, the, the most thing I could wish anybody going into that role is low expectations. (laughs) because because the idea that there's going to be some strong man that's going to come and fix everything um, really quickly is just, you know, it's just a real, it's a problem for everybody. And and in fact, um, we'll see what happens with Donald Trump in in the United States. I mean, Mm. there's a desperate desire from the electorate, this idea that you have a strong leader that makes things happen. But the reality is much harder. 
I think it's very difficult. I think if he really started to do some stuff, whatever it might be, on the issues that that people assumed he'd he'd act on, um, uh, you know, he's he's forgotten really the some key stuff around the economy. He's been, you know, it's quite hard for the electorate to kind of say there's one issue he's really passionate about, he really hasn't pursued it. So he, he it seems like a very wishy-washy agenda, a very reactive agenda, and, and, and the electorate really don't respond very well to that. So I think he's in a... And, of course, there are some parts of the electorate that just perceive him as being completely um, captive to the right wing of the extreme right wing of his party and that he's desperate not to lose his job so he's, he's prepared to you know toe their line on things like marriage equality and renewables and all that other stuff rather than take a slightly more objective um approach to that so you know that that's really where he's in a really difficult bind and i've got to say i um i'm sad about it because Part of me, even though I'm not naturally a conservative voter, part of me was really pleased that when he became prime minister, more than more than I'm one of those people who um, isn't a diehard. It's like when I go to a football game, I want the Sydney Swans to win, but I also want there to be a good game. (laughs) And so it's the same. My same attitude to democracy. You know, in general, I want. You know, I'm a. I'm a. I'm a you know left of centre person, so in general I want the Labor Party to win. But more importantly, I want good government and stable government. I don't get very excited when we have the kinds of results that we had there, which was Malcolm Turnbull not winning a decisive victory. I wanted him to win a decisive victory. I didn't want him to have the kind of victory that he had. I don't like the kind of volatility we're seeing, at, for example, in New South Wales, where one moment, you know, the... Conservatives are thrown in in large numbers and the next moment they're thrown out in large numbers. I think it's bad for government, bad for reform, bad for policy. Couldn't agree more. I'm speaking with Rebecca Huntley, who's the author of a book, Still Lucky. Um, Rebecca, with this title, um, you know, you're hinting here at the fact that um, we've been lucky and that we're still lucky. And one of the things that you explore in the book is the resilience and good heart of the Australian people. Um, And could you share with us the the types of people you've seen and the reason why you um, you believe that we are still lucky? Yeah, oh, look, I, I mean, there's so many. I mean, I talk a bit about um, one of the women at the beginning of the book. I, I remember going, the first time I ever went to a particular town in country Victoria um, and I think that often, you know, inner city urban dwellers assume that everybody who doesn't live in their suburb are kind of narrow-minded racists, <laughs> to tell you the truth. And, um, and that's not true. I've met, you know, narrow-minded racists in every suburb, you know, and every, every socioeconomic group and ethnic group you can imagine. But I went into this um, home of these women in their early 40s, and these women, you know, you know a lot of them were in, under a lot of pressure with their kids at school, with bullying, with um, education costs. Some of them were really struggling about working out how to send us send some of them to the city to do, you know, the expense of that to do the kinds of education and training that they needed to have kind of good jobs. A lot of these women had been kind of working part-time or casual work during their... um, during the time that they were raising their kids and then finding that their husbands were thrown into early retirement. So often their husbands were in kind of 
manufacturing or industrial um, jobs or tradies that were suddenly finding themselves finding it quite hard as those men headed towards 50 to find full-time work. So suddenly these women were being thrown into um, the full-time care, um, carer as well as the full-time earner. What I loved about these women is how, um, you know, even though they had every excuse of stress and kids and money and time to give, they'd all um, banded together to... to um, to do some stuff around football and some of the refugee kids that were living in the community, so to give them a bit of a taste of of, of AFL and hopefully um, deal with some of the issues around social cohesion in their community. Some of them were lobbying really hard to get some good quality skate parks for the teenage kids there who were kind of running around and getting into trouble if they didn't have a skate park. And, you know, really um, just finding time to contribute to their community in really inventive ways and so the other thing I loved about them is that one of the women had been found to be a, a bone marrow donor for a complete stranger in Melbourne and she was going to do, she was going to go to Melbourne for three weeks to donate that marrow um, and she that was going to be painful that was going to be difficult she had to take that time off work so instead of going on a holiday she was going to do this and all of her friends were like okay i'll do i'll pick your kid up i'll make the casserole you know they all and so you know that's just one of so many examples of the capacity for you know really tight friendship groups regardless of their background regardless of their where they live to make a, you know extraordinary inventive creative contributions to their community and you know you can't help but be moved by that if you're exposed to it on a weekly basis for 10 years mm. so um, um i love these women too cuz they were yeah they were just they were just really clever they weren't constantly complaining about how the news was full of you know rubbish about you know this cricketer's wife and you know you know what are the we've got huge issues facing our community you know why do we need to listen you know read this silly gossip so they were clever um generous lovely women and just one of one of those groups that you wish you could have stayed a bit longer hang out with them afterwards. <laughs> Absolutely, they are. And yeah. um, and there is a whole chapter on women in particular and mm. the pressures that they're facing. So I encourage yeah. all listeners to check out the book. Unfortunately, we've run out of time because I would love to keep talking about this, Rebecca, and there's just so, there's much, so much to cover. To Absolutely. Um, and, yeah, I encourage everyone to check it out. Uh, it's called Still Lucky. It's by Rebecca Huntley, who's been speaking with us. She's a social researcher and it's um, published by Penguin Books in Australia. So, yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Rebecca, and best of luck Thank with it all. Thank you for having me. It's thanks a so pleasure. Much. And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the RRR website. Hope to see you again next time.